good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns has aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And a reminder that during the pandemic, we're recording this show in advance by Zoom and we won't be taking any calls today. Ruth Moore was born on Gotts Island in 1903. Her novels earned a place in American literature in the 20th century, resonating equally with those who still work the land and the sea and those who had left rural places for the city. She wrote of the pull of home, the place you were homesick for, even when you were there. And today's show we envision as a, a, a Valentine to Ruth Moore. Um, and we've got some wonderful folks who can help us understand her life and her writing. Um, we're glad to welcome Dennis Damon to uh, Talk of the Towns. Welcome to you, Dennis. Dennis is, the, is a former state senator in Hancock County. He's the board chair of uh, the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. And, and um, if I can describe his as a raconteur, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree, Dan, Dennis? You're also joining us is Muriel Davison. Uh, Muriel is the niece of Ruth Moore. She's retired from the faculty of the Jackson Lab, and she's the president of the Tremont Historical Society. Welcome to you, Muriel. Thank you. Good to be here. Gary Lawless is a poet, um, co-owner of Gulf, Maine, Gulf of Maine Books in Brunswick and owner of the publishing company Blackberry Books in Nobleboro. Welcome to you, Gary. Th thanks for being with us. Thank you. Dean Lunt was born on Frenchboro. He's the owner of Island Port Press based in Yarmouth. And um, we'll talk to him further about um, publishing some of, of uh, um, Ruth's novels and books as Gary has done in the past. So welcome to you, Dean. Thank you. Good to be here. And Emily Trask-Eaton, also a niece of, of Ruth Moore and executrix of her literary estate. Um, she's a retired uh, physician living in Waldeboro. Welcome to you, Emmy. Glad Thank you could you. be with us. Perhaps each of you could could uh, provide a little bit of background on how you knew how you knew Ruth Moore, how you came to understand, in Dean's case, how you kind kind of understand um, her place in American literature and in the state of Maine. Could we um, start with you, um, Emmy, and uh, as a family member, how did you know Ruth? Oh, sure. Well, I kind of grew up in her living room, running around the, the braided rug, driving Eleanor crazy. Children were always welcome at Ruth and Eleanor's, um, although Eleanor had a little trouble with toddlers. But we were included in conversations. We were, our opinions were respected and taken very seriously. Um, it was an amazing um, early experience. And this was her home in Bass Harbor. It was her home in Bass Harbor, right. yeah. How about you, um, Muriel? Um, what are your, how did you come to know her as, as, her, as her niece? Actually, I kind of knew her in two ways. So like Emmy said, growing up, we were often there um, as a family to visit with her. She had a, a Noah's Ark a toy, quite sizable, that had a lot of little animals in it. And, um, and we always could get that out and play with it. But I also knew her 
when I, after I graduated from college and moved back to Tremont in the town where Bass Harbor is located, she had a group of, of women friends who often, who they parted at each other's houses. And I got included in that group and got to see that part of her life, which was fun. Gary, how did you first uh, meet, begin to think about publishing her works? Well, I, I, I first met Ruth through books uh, rather than in person uh, because of my mother who grew up in Prospect and then Belfast. And in the early 70s, I was working in a book chain called Bookland here in Southern Maine. And my mother said, you've got to read Ruth Moore. You've got to read these books. And, and I, I couldn't find them. They were out of print. You know, they, they weren't around. And um, my mother had spoon handles. So I started reading that and just, and uh, it set me off on this course where I really wanted someone to reprint Ruth's books. And over a period of time, I wrote to several publishing, but down East and international Marine and all these places trying to get them to republish it. And finally, Ruth, Ruth wrote me a letter and said, well, why don't you do it? But I was kind of scared of Ruth, so I didn't actually meet her till I published the second book. I published the weir. I didn't go down. I published Spoon Handle, and then I finally went down and met Ruth. And she's like, "Well, where have you been?" <laughs> and then she was mad at me because all of a sudden people were writing her letters and wanting her to, see, you know, she can't couldn't go grocery shopping. It was. It was really a fun uh, relationship. I, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that relationship. So she was uh, objecting a little bit um, to the, the new, <laughs> newfound notoriety. And, and when, when was this happening, Gary? When were you um, uh, talking about um, getting those books published and, and well, eventually doing that? Well, I was talking about that in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And then finally, I, you know, I started to do it. I, I did it. I, you know, I didn't have any money. I, you know, I had just started my own independent bookstore, which is not a way to riches. Believe me. I thought, of course it was, but it didn't turn out to be. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis, how did you, how did you first meet um, Ruth and what was your connection to her? Well, I, I think I, I, I heard of her long before I actually met her. As I grew up in Northeast Harbor. Um, across the sound from uh, from Bernard and, and well McKinley, I'd heard that there was a woman over there that wrote books. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of odd. Uh, how do you make a living doing that? And so I'd heard her name, but then fast forward into the uh, probably the early to mid seventies, and I was teaching. Uh, at the high school on the island, Mount Desert Island High School. And um, one day after class, a young man came up to me and said, my aunt has written a book. I think you'd like it. And I, he showed it to me and it was cold as a dog in the wind and all these. I took it, put it in my briefcase, thanked him and walked off and never opened it. <clears throat> a couple of weeks later, he asked how I liked it. And I said, uh, God, I haven't quite finished it. So I opened it for the first time that night started reading words that never have struck me like words in a book had before. They sounded to me like mama or dad sitting on the side of my bed when I was a young boy telling me a story uh, before bed. I gave the book back uh, and then subsequently had a chance to meet her. And, and it's interesting that Emmy talked about the braided rug because when I finally built up the courage, after listening to Gary, I, I had retired from teaching and Gary was giving a talk in Bangor that one of my former colleagues told me about. And, and I went and sat and listened. And I think it was Tongue of Granite 
uh, tongue of salt, Gary. And uh, I listened. And then that next day, I ended up calling her to see if I could come and visit. <clears throat> and she agreed. And so I came into the room and sat down across the room from her. And that braided rug was between us. And that paid, uh, played a, a kind of a significant part into all of the meetings that we had um, until she passed. And I give just a brief uh, counterpoint to Dennis's introduction to Ruth. She had, I guess you had called her or wrote her a letter or something, but you had communicated with her and she said, well, this young man wants to come and see me. I suppose he's okay because he's from the island. So you were on, uh, you were you on okay? judgment that first day. You passed. <laughs> well, talking about islands, uh, Dean, talk a little bit about your, your, your connection to Ruth. Um, if, if you didn't, hadn't met her, you, you shared a connection to growing up on an island, um, a small island. Uh, yeah, well, I had sort of like Miriam, I guess. I had two, uh, Ruth is in two different orbits of mine. So I grew up on Frenchboro, which is eight miles at sea. And God's Island is on the way to Frenchboro, about six miles closer or so to the mainland. So you, you go through those channels in uh, God's Island, the houses open up to the boat as you're going across there. And you go through there, fog, rain, rough seas, calm seas. And you see those houses in there. And you're like, okay, what's the deal with those houses? Who live there? Why they live there? So you're intrigued by that the whole time. Um, and then as a junior high student and, and high school student with Dennis as a teacher, I lived in Bernard for on Lopez Point for six years and she was in Mass Harbor. So we always had these sort of orbits we, we moved in, even though I never met her. And also I think if you come from these small islands, anytime you find somebody who's succeeded or has a life like yours, you're like, wow, I'm not alone. There's somebody else doing this stuff. So that intrigued me. And I went to Syracuse and moved on and, became a journalist and then started a publishing company. And then I moved back sort of into the books and, and, and was searching for old main books and authentic made books that we could bring back, republish that still held up today. So as a child looking at her house and then as an adult revisiting her novels, more from a writing standpoint, as opposed to, hey, she grew up on an island like I did. Right. So I've sort of had two, two lives with Ruth Moore. Sure, sure. Well, let's give a um, kind of a profile of, of Ruth's life, either uh, Muriel or, or Emily, talk a little bit about her growing up. Um, what do you what do you know about that, either from family connections or because, you know, we've, we've been able to read um, the wonderful collection. I don't have it right with me, but Sandy Phippen's letters and, and background that Gary then published. What do we know about um, Ruth's growing up years? Well, um, she went, she grew up as uh, in a family of four siblings on Gotts Island, Great God Island. And, and her, um, her parents were two things. One was her parents were very supportive of education and both our mother, her, one of her younger sisters, and she were encouraged to go to college and they helped her pay for it. The other, I, I was thinking as I was preparing for this, um, there were summer residents on Gotts Island Oh, and I should say her, da her dad and mother ran the um, island store, general store. Her dad was the postmaster and in later years ran a boarding house for summer residents. As people came to the island and built houses, the impact, the summer residents, many of them had a strong impact on Ruth's growing up and on her later 
later life, and we'll talk about her, her later life and what she did after she left the island and finished college, but um, Mary White Ovington, who was the, um, a co-founder of the NAACP, her family had a summer home on the island. <clears throat> she got Ruth into um, most of her jobs for prominent people in uh, New York City when she went there. And then there were two other families, the Holmeses and the Davidsons, who um, encouraged her to go to college after she finished high school. Yeah, it shows, and she she had to leave the island, Cots Island, to go oh. to high school, right? So yeah. um, that was um, an interesting chapter in her life. Um, my understanding is that she didn't much like the high school experience. She went to high school in Ellsworth, right? And, um, and she felt as though um, the students at the high school looked down on her. And and I think I mean I can a little bit relate to that because we were tuition students into the Southwest Harbor High School. And we were never, I never felt really part of the community in the high school there because I came from the west side of the island. <laughs> sure. Amy, what would you add about Ruth's um, earlier years? Well, I want to add that um, Ruth came up against uh, what? Traditional ideas of what a woman should be. And I think one of the strongest is uh, one of the strongest influences was actually her mother, Viney Moore, who raised chickens, sold the eggs, sent the egg money to Ruth and Esther when they were in college. So supported them in every way she can. I'm not sure her father was as supportive. I know her brother didn't approve of anything she did, and it was hard for her. She she missed her mother. But it was hard to go home because there was that tug and pull. A lot of thoughts came into my head and now they're all gone. So, Well, that, that, um, <laughs> some of that comes out in the letters um, that, that, that yes. there were um, people were making judgments about mm-hmm. what a woman could do. And that yeah. traditional role of, no, you're supposed to be at home, you know, in, yeah. in the household versus having a career. So I want, I want to talk about um, Esther Trask, her sister, Muriel and my mother, who little known, Esther was Ruth's first editor and her always first editor. When Ruth wrote a book chapter by chapter, she would give it to Esther and she would edit it. So very much a part of that early process. She was a high school, well, she wasn't a high school English teacher. She was trained for that. Very literate and uh, wise and and intelligent. Well, as I've listened to... um... Muriel and Emmy talking about Ruth and and especially how she was bumping up against the traditional thoughts, if that's how it can be put, with what women should do. I was talking to her once about reading, and uh, I had to confess to her that I didn't read much for enjoyment. I read for, I don't know what you do, what you read for if you don't enjoy it, but she said that she had learned to read early on, that her mother had taught her, and that she loved reading, and, and she read through the entire family bookcase. Now, I don't know how extensive that was, but she did name um, a particular author whose name escapes me now, who had written a, a series of uh, Western novels, I think. And so she read through all of that, and, and she read so much that when her grandparents, her grandmothers in particular, would come by they would uh, caution her about reading too much and reading so fast. 
she said that they thought that I was reading so fast and I must be skipping the point and thus wasting my time. And then the other thing was that if she read so much that she would bust her brains. And, um, and so that was the kind of caution that they were giving to her, according to her. And see, if, if she had taken heed to that and stopped reading, well, where would we be? Sure. But she didn't take heed to much. She was her own person and she moved as she thought she should move. And that was one of the really the endearing qualities that I found in her. Dean, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I think, uh, listen to, to Emmy, I think, or, or Muriel. So coming from those islands and a woman at that time, I think she had multiple things working against her, not only traditional values of women, but those islands are very steeped in tradition. And you leave those islands, you're also bucking up against uh, what the islanders think of you. And then if you go to MDI High School or Ellsworth High School, there's also stereotypes you're dealing with with them. So she was sort of surrounded by, I think, all these stereotypes and obstacles she was overcoming. I mean, I'm guessing. But that said, you can't write about those islands until you leave. So I think all that helped her down the road by getting away, seeing through clear eyes later on. But um, she had a lot of uh, a lot of obstacles overcome in those cases. So she she did get away. She went to college. Can somebody pick up the, the story of, of what um, she did and, and, the, and the notion that some of the summer residents helped her find positions? Will you Amy? go there? Can I talk about her sister? I want to cover all her siblings. Louise Great. was the youngest, led a very traditional life. After Ruth died and we talked about, you know, how, what are we going to do with her books? I don't know if, how it coincided with Gary or what Louise said was, let's just let her be. Do no mm. more. Muriel, can you kind of um, t tell us a little bit about um, her life after leaving the island? Um, sure. And, and the, the book of letters that Sandy Fippen edited is almost like an autobiography because it covers most of the 20 years that she was away from the island. I mentioned Mary White Ovington before. Um, Ruth went to the state teachers, Albany State Teachers College in New York. She did teach one year in Islip, New York, and decided that was not for her. <laughs> So she went to work for Mary White Ovington as a private secretary and through her eventually worked in the NAACP. She worked for several prominent people in New York City. And when she was in the working at the NAACP, she ran a fundraising campaign for them, or co-ran the artwork and the writing. And then they sent her several times to investigate um, in, the, in the South during, about racial issues. And it was a dangerous time during the 30s to be doing that. In, in one case, she investigated, uh, one, one thing that she talked about was she, one of her trips, I think it was in Mississippi, she investigated um, a case where two young black men were, um, had been arrested for murdering someone. And she was able to provide the information that freed them. Mm. And I think she also, when she got back into New York City, did one investigation in Northern New York State. And then she met um, Alice Tisdale Hobart, who wrote Oil for the Lamps of China, and was hired as her uh, private secretary and special assistant. And that took her to their home in uh, Washington, D.C. And then so Ruth, Ruth led a really interesting life when she was uh, away those 20 years. Um, they, she, they took her with them to their fruit and nut ranch in Berkeley, California. 
And she ended up, in addition to being a special assistant and editor for Alice, managing their um, managing that ranch for them. Um, and, and when you read the letters, there's one, and I can't tell you which one, but anyone who reads the letters, there's one where she talks about going through an earthquake and what she hears her neighbors up and down the hillside saying after the earthquake's over. It, it's very comical. Right. And she wrote her letters. They read the same way her books go. Right. I want to, because we're going to run out of time, I want to jump ahead. Um, She ended up working for Reader's Digest. Um, For Reader's Digest, she was um, reading and then then, uh, abridging. A reader and then a condenser. And and actually, just one quick thing. Our mother was teaching at Southwest Harbor in 1940, and Eleanor Mayo was in her classes, English class. And and in the summer of 1940, when Ruth was at home, my our mother introduced them and they lived together from 1941 1940 until Eleanor died in 1981 mm, mm. and about the reader's digest thing she always job she always said that um, that helped her write her own books without any superfluous words any fluff <laughs> um, because she had learned how to condense a novel down to what was important sure sure and then in 1943 um, published she actually started it in California. She published The Weir and then Spoonhandle in 46. And that was sold as a movie to the movies. And Deep Waters was the name of the movie. And that gave them the money to move back to Bass Harbor and build their own house with the help hmm. of Ellen's father, who was a carpenter. And so they, they lived, um, uh, Ruth and Eleanor lived in, in Bass Harbor, and they were very active in the community um, as community members. They, they, they took an act, active civic role in the community. Yeah, and Eleanor, I mean, Ruth was actually on the school board for a while, and Eleanor was, I believe, the first, she was certainly the first woman select person in, in Tremont and maybe in Maine. Mm. Gary, why don't you um, kind of chime in in terms of, of what you saw as significant about Ruth's novels? And she's written other things too, but let's focus on the novels for just a minute. When I first started reading Ruth's books, it was like I was listening to my grandmother t- talk to me. I, you know, I, I grew up in Belfast on, on the other side of Penobscot Bay, the western side. But the voices were so, you know, she made a point to make everything accurate. If she, if she had mislabeled a tool, she would be embarrassed. I, you know, I mean, everything was, was true to form and not romanticized. I mean, these, these were novels that seemed to come, and they didn't have car chases and, you know, well, most of them didn't have murders. There may have been, but, you know, I mean, it, it, was, it was real life. The, the, the issues that were represented were not foreign to us here. They, they really grew out of this soil. And, you know, in, in this, and when I tried to get people reinterested in republishing, they said, oh, she's too regional. And I was like, what good literature isn't? You know, I mean, is Faulkner too regional? Is Steinbeck too regional? You know, I mean, it's just, that was baloney. I mean, but it was just so, it, it seemed to really capture the period that she was writing about and the place that she was writing about. And, and uh, that is great literature. That it, it doesn't mean that people just from Penobscot Bay would enjoy reading this. You know, it's, it was just, and I think the Reader's Digest experience helped her too, because when she was consolidating other people's novels and keeping in what was important to the story. And I think in her books, everything's important to the story. I mean, it's not a, there's not a lot of superfluous stuff in those, in those books. Um, 
Plus, she was a poet, so she did, you know, have a way of keeping the language without without overburdening it. I think. Anyway, it just it just seemed it just seemed real to me. I just want to remind listeners that they're tuned to talk of the towns this morning or this afternoon rather, and uh, we're doing a Valentine to Ruth Moore. Uh, with us is uh, uh, you've just heard from Gary Lawless, um, who is a, a poet, co-owner of Gulf of Maine Books, and uh, the owner of publishing company Blackberry Books in Nobleboro. Uh, Dennis Damon is with us, a former state senator. He's the board chair of the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. Muriel Davison. Emily Trask-Eaton are both nieces of Ruth Moore, and Dean Lunt is, was born on French Borough and is the owner of Island Port Press. I'd like each of you now to, to uh, perhaps share something that Ruth wrote um, that resonates with you, maybe set it up a little bit with a context, and um, just to, to give listeners a kind of a flavor um, of uh, who Ruth was as a writer and as a person. Um, who'd like to start with a piece that they're um, prepared to read? As I've mentioned before, the first book uh, that she had written that I came in contact with was uh, a little book of ballads called Cold as a Dog in the Wind Northeast. I want to share uh, the prologue from that book because for me, uh, it's the essence of a storyteller, the essence of an artist, really. It has in it, it to me, uh, a vision, an imagination, all of those things that uh, coincide with with somebody's creativity. I once see a whale with a gold tooth and he rose right out of the sea and he opened his mouth in the morning sun and he showed that tooth to me. And once when I was fishing the deep ground with nigh six pounds of lead, I caught a cod big as a man and it had a man's head. Oh, there ain't no end to what I would tell once I was well begun like seeing the devil rise from the sea and instead of the rising sun, like sea snakes lashing the moonlit sea with their terrible olipins and little mermaids with diamond eyes and solid silver fins. For some have eyes to see strange sights and such a one I be, but I ain't known as an honest man and Nobody harks to me. Well, within all that, to me, it captures her imagination, and it also is a little bit of a self-effacing piece at the end. Uh, but people did listen to her, and, and we're still listening to her, and we're still talking about her. That's the important part. Who else would like to read? Gary, have you got a piece that you would like to share with, with folks? Sure, it's, it's, sure. I'm a poet. Come on. I, you, I always <laughs> want to share. Um, Towards the end of her life, we were meeting with Ruth uh, in what I, would you call it an assisted living center? I'm not even really sure. You, her family can tell me that. But anyway, she wasn't at home. And we were working on a book uh, called The Tired Apple Tree, Poems and Ballads. And I was meeting with her there. And the last time we saw her, we went over and had lunch with her. And she decided that the book was finished. And we said, okay, it's it's all done then. And um we had lunch and then we, we hugged her and we left. And, and I think Emmy called like two days later, three days later, maybe. And, the, and she had passed and it was like her work was done. Um, it, it was beautiful. I, I, I found it very beautiful, sad. Uh, so this is a, a, my favorite poem. 
in that book. Um, it's called The Offshore Islands. And I, th I think it really gives her, it's like a history of, of the islands there. So anyway, the offshore islands belong to themselves. They stand in their own sea. They do not inherit. They leave no heirs. They're no man's legacy. Blazing volcanoes, cooled and dead, marked nowhere a boundary line. The rise and fall of oceans left not one no trespassing sign. The money was never minted, the clutch of its greed so strong it could honor a deed to have and to hold and keep these wild lands long. The first summer people were Indians. For some 5,000 years, they built up shoreline shell heaps before they lost to the pioneers. The white man took what he wanted. He had privilege, laws, and guns. He made fast his own boundary lines, and his property went to his sons. From the west, they sailed in tobacco boats, and the high stern pinkies Essex made. In harbors where water was deep enough, their schooners carried a coastwise trade. The homesteads they made were sturdy, but those who built near the shores had to dig if they didn't want Indian shells all over their cellar floors. The time slipped by as inheritance does. They felt the mainland's pull. They abandoned their homes to rot away and their cemeteries full. Theirs was the time of history and written records show that their hold on the offshore islands began less than 400 years ago. And now comes the era of real estate, of the $100,000 lots, of the condominiums side by side along the shoreline's choicest spots. What follows the time of developers, no human voice can tell, but the silent offshore islands know and they handle their mysteries well. They speak with a voice that is all their own. And this is what they say, that they talk in terms of a billion years, that their now is not today and the ghosts they brought along with them have never gone away. Mm. That was Gary Lawless reading, um, what's the name of the poem again? The Offshore Islands. Offshore Islands, yeah, thank you, thank you. Muriel, would you like to uh, share a piece of, of, of Ruth's writing? I would. Um, so I picked a, a selection, a passage from um, her book, Spoon Handle, and I picked it because, well, it's one of my favorite, but, um, she, it shows how well she did descriptions and described the people that she wrote about. So, winter in a northern seacoast land is interlude. Day after day in the changing weather, high clouds soaring, storms driving low, the land huddles into itself. Salt water curdles into slush against the shore, then slowly into grainy pale green ice, fissured by tides and flung in crumpled blocks up and down the beaches. The spruces crack and snap on a windless evening and let go their loads of snow so that a woodlot in the cold seems to be talking to itself in a language of small stirrings, whispers, and sighs. There is nothing people can do with land like that, bitten four feet deep with frost, secret and uncommunicative under snow. Winter is a time of gear overhauling in the fish houses, snug with fires built in oil drum stoves, of building traps and painting buoys, of mending the dragnet that the shark tore through, <clears throat> the shark himself is keen in the memory, and the gaping hole he made is here and now. But the warm weather, the summertime, lost in the blizzard that drives the small drift under the windowsill, is as unreal as a ghost until it comes again. The talk above the tapping hammers is gusty and loud, but to a man going home to summer, supper, walking through the snowy twilight in the 
walking through a dream, and the house looming in blown whiteness is a house of sleep. Winter is the time of woodcutting, the hollow thung of the axes like bells among the tree boles, the clean track of the wood sled, and the brown dung of the horses in the snow, the frosty maple butt flying apart on the chopping block at a touch of the axe. In the early mornings, blue with snow and coming light, the deer comes to the orchard, digging with her cold hoofs for the frozen buried apples. And in the time after the gear is overhauled and the wood is cut and the boat is painted, content comes out or loneliness bites deep, depending on whether people are content or lonely. Mm. Mm. And again, Muriel Davison reading from Ruth Moore's book that was from Spoonhandle. It's from Spoonhandle. It's also in the introduction to the book of letters. Emmy, would you like to share a piece of uh, writing that has meant something to you from Ruth Moore? One thing we haven't talked about is, uh, well, we did with Cold as a Dog, but her poetry, and particularly her early poetry was very personal, um, she, as her novels were not. She didn't talk about herself in her novels. Um, from the time I was 16, she and I collaborated, and I set her poems to music, and she would come out of the bedroom with one piece of paper in hand and kind of throw it at me and say, here, see what you can do with that. At the end of her life, I hope I'm not taking too much time. At the end of her life, before she went to the nursing home, we were there visiting one day and she went into the bedroom and I thought, oh good, another, another poem. And she came out with um, a box that a ream of paper is kept in. And it was about half full and she handed it to me and she said, here, take these. I don't know why I've been so stingy with them. And so since her death, I've worked on those. So what I want to read is a poem simply called Sonnet, written when she was a young person. I don't think we know exactly. Do you, Gary? I don't know exactly. I'll try to get through it. It's, it's hard. It's hard to read. I cannot think that you are akin to man, that you are made of dust and earth-like things because the memory of you always brings old dreams that aged before the world began. The years that could not hold you in their span have gone as night winds go on silent wings, leaving to you the memory of their springs, their youth that laughed as ancient hours ran. As everlasting forests in the sun cast longer shadows, when the afternoon grows old and all the lost sunbeams are spun into the web that makes the rising moon, so in my heart, when day is almost done, you cast long shadows. Night comes swift and soon. Ron? Yes, go ahead. Go well, ahead. Emmy said she wrote that when she was young, and I, I live in Ruth's house now, and I have her library, and among them is a small book that is, was when she was in college, um, a book of poetry, and there are several of her poems, and I'm pretty sure that sonnet is in that book. I think she wrote it in college. Uh, I don't yeah. think it is. Now well, we're going to have a family discussion about okay. when it well, was written. There is a sonnet there, but maybe not that one. I haven't read um, it. Actually... Could I read one more poem? And this Brief, is briefly, if you could, yeah. It's, it's pretty quick. It's called Suicide. 
a friend of hers had committed suicide. You talked to fair immoral ladies once and I could always have you into tea. Your gesture when you lit a cigarette was circumspect and beautiful to see. No more with curious laughter shall you weave your fire-spun web of words before my grate. And even I must struggle to recall your voice and you, both cool, immaculate. No winter mood of sorrow chills my heart. Regret, perhaps, and wonder asking me how you, who thought these matters of some note, could smash your masterpiece so carelessly. Mm, mm. So these poems um, reveal a side that most people haven't seen. They've, they've read the novels, they've read or heard the ballads, but these are, 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 are more private. And um, so do you, do you hope to, to publish those? I don't know. Yeah, but, <laughs> but they're, in your, they're in your keeping. You know, she gave them to you to, to do something with. Yes, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. Dean, uh, uh, if you could share, Dean Lunt, could you share something um, that, that Ruth has written that uh, is meaningful to you? I think I'll share something that sort of highlights why I think she's held up. So I think by personality and training, uh, she's a very straightforward person, like those islands. And I think at one point in stuff I've read, she described herself as watching from the underbrush and that she was uh, keep it simple. And I, and I think if you read her stuff, um, it's very journalistic. It's almost like new journalism, except she's not reporting. She's observing. And that's why her stuff holds up. It's very straightforward. It's very authentic. Those two things go together. And other books we look at from the 40s and 50s are often epic. It's sweeping. Uh, and she finds universal from the small, the minute detail, which she elevates the universal, which holds up over time compared to metaphorical nonsense from the 30s and 40s, no offense to anybody. But so if you open up the weir, uh, again, you read Chase or something like that and this sweeping sea scenes and everything else. But she opens her first novel, so small, so minute, that you're right in the room and then takes off from there. So this is the opening of the weir. It says, Hardy Turner slid out of bed quietly so as not to waken his wife. But as he put the quilts back around her shoulders, Josie moved a little and said, you going, Hardy? Guess I better. Well, light that lamp then. No use dressing in the dark. I'm wide awake. She could hear him moving around, and presently she leaned over, fumbled for a match on the stand by the bed, and lit the small kerosene lamp. Hardy was standing by the window, peering out, his eyes close to the glass. The window faced west, and the soft muslin curtains were bowed out against the screen as if glued there. As he turned away, a gust baffled around the corner of the house and sent them flapping wildly out into the room. The window shade bulged, cracked loudly against the woodwork. Then the wind sucked away, drawing the curtains straining against the screen again. My land, Josie put her feet out of bed, reached for a house dress to put on over her nightgown. Tis blowing, ain't it? What time is it, Hardy? It's half past one. Wind's been breezing on hard since 12. You've been awake all that time? Off and on. No need for you to get up, Josie. I'll make you some coffee and fry some eggs. It'll be cold down hanging on them smiling. I'll drink some milk. So it's just so simple and puts you there and starts off the novel with dialogue, which is very clipped, like the Islanders speak, very direct. 
and then you go on from there. There's no metaphors. There's no, there's no grand epics. It's just straight ahead, get moving, bring on Hemingway and Faulkner. And there you go. Great. Great. Thank you all for sharing those. So um, a couple of, of people uh, we're not able to talk with, Sandy Fippen. Um, how did Sandy come into um, you know, um, this, this story and, and talk about um, him c- collecting and, and uh, publishing or getting those, those letters published? Gary, can you, can you talk about that and, and Sandy's part of the story? How do you keep Sandy out? <laughs> S- Sandy comes in. <laughs> Sandy comes in. But but one thing Sandy was doing as, as a teacher and as a writer, he was pushing main literature by main people. And and that's something that I think Ruth did. She she became a successful main writer, which encouraged other main kids or adults to use their own voices and tell their own stories. And, and she did it so well and was successful doing it that there are now, you know, there's this whole main scene of main novels, half of them written by someone who just moved here from Massachusetts and doesn't know how to pronounce Bangor. But, you know, they're, they're, she opened it up in a beautiful, beautiful way uh, and, and encouraged people that, you know, main people that your voice matters and your story matters. And here's, I'm going to tell a story really well and you're going to have to try to live up to this bar. But so Sandy was promoting main literature, you know, and, and he was writing essays about where's the main voice in literature and, and, uh, and, you know, and Ruth, of course, well, Sandy's, you know, he's from Hancock. He, he's, he's from that part of the state, that part of the coast and was a huge admirer uh, of Ruth's work, um, yeah, and and uh, you know ended up editing the letters, which was quite a, a a job. I will point out that there's a section of Ruth's life where there are no uh, there's a you know and and Emmy and Muriel might mention about that, but there's a section of her life where there's the letters aren't there. But I would also say that if if there are people out there who are interested in writing about Ruth, the Maine Women Writers Collection at what's now the University of New England in Portland has really good resources. And it would be great to have some uh, students who need a thesis project, you know, I mean, to, to do some research, you know, there's not a good biography. Like, like they said, the, the, the letters are a partial autobiography, I think. I think there are parts of her life that are missing. Um, I would also say that Sven is, re, is publishing the, republishing the novels by the other half of the house. Uh, and it's really interesting to see, you know, two women who I think had two different rooms with typewriters in them where they were working on their their stories, you know. So, so uh, I've wandered from Sandy. This happens to me. I'm sorry. Uh, but <laughs> Just remind our listeners who Sandy was. And Sandy Pippen ha- is, is, is. is yes, I'm sorry. Sandy, sorry. Is, yeah. Sandy um, is a, a uh, fiction writer, a short story writer, novelist, playwright. Um, teacher, high school teacher, inspired many Maine kids to read and tell their own stories and to read Ruth Moore. Uh, as I, I had no money when I was trying to promote Ruth, so I made a my guerrilla marketing strategy was I made bumper stickers that said I read Ruth Moore, and they were all over Hancock County for a while. <laughs> That's the kind of dumb publisher I am, you know. <laughs> like, but but Sandy was really important to me in helping 
get Ruth's name out to the public. Um, and and then he, I, you know, that letters book. I only I published fifteen hundred copies. I thought this is it's a huge book. I wasn't sure anyone was going to want to buy it, but they're all gone. You know, it's out of print. I just wanted to point out that um, that Emmy had uh, provided me a, a reference to Jennifer Craig Pixley, who um, mm. was teaching Ruth Moore at the University of Maine, and she wrote a wonderful, very concise history of Ruth's life, um, and that can be found online. So um, along with your recommendation, Gary, if people are interested, um, they could um, seek out this um, piece by Jennifer Craig Pixley. Well, um, last comments before we turn it to Dennis to, to wrap us up. What, what else haven't we said in this very brief hour um, about uh, Ruth Moore? Emmy? Well, I was up late last night writing this, I don't know what you call it, thing I was going to say today about my role and uh, her legacy and all that. And I got up this morning and reread it, and I could hear her snickering behind me. <laughs> I was talking about Ruth Moore's Maine and resilience and how Maine people survive, blah, 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 including in the COVID era. Um, unlike Ruth, whose words were her thoughts, my words get in the way of my thoughts. So um, I, I got another poem to read. Her poem very, very briefly, because we, we want to give Dennis that time to read um, okay, as well. This yep. is a quick one. To whom shall I send, it's titled December, to whom shall I send some Christmas greens? To the nation's children, short on beans, with a bottle of ketchup to take the crunch out of the cost of a school kid's lunch? To the U.S. Senators, all goodwill for the state of the budget on Capitol Hill, who hearing the sound of the Christmas bell, season's greetings, joyer Noel, eyed the kitty of ways and means, and voted themselves a splendid raise. For any but taxpayer knows the lift to a hardworking man of a Christmas gift. So this I'll send, you've done it again. God rest you merry, gentlemen. <laughs> Always contemporary. Right, and as I read those letters um, again, um, um, Ruth always had um, thoughts about um, the, the role of government in our lives, <laughs> including the income tax. Um, yeah. I, I got a kick out of her, her um, reminder of how the income tax uh, played in her, her life and everybody's life. Dennis, I do want to give you a chance to kind of introduce this piece and, and close with it. But uh, um, so I'll turn, turn it over to you and, and thank you all for, for being with us um, this afternoon. Dennis? Well, thanks. It's really uh, quite an honor to to end this program, which I think has been very good and very uh, informative. And I hope that the listeners uh, enjoy it as much as we have enjoyed providing it. And thank you, Ron and WEIU for doing this. Um, there are eight ballads in the little book, uh, Cold as a Dog in the Wind Northeast. All of them are <clears throat> very worthy of being read or retold. Um, the book was uh, republished by Gordon Bach, <clears throat> pardon me, of Camden. Um, that was interesting in itself, uh, how he and uh, Ruth met, but it's good that he did that. And now I understand, uh, uh, I think that the publishing rights have been turned back to the estate. So that's also good. Uh, this is the first ballad and it follows the prologue that I did a little bit earlier. And it's about a fellow who has a herring wear. And if you have a herring wear, you have to tend it. 
uh, every day, not just five days a week, but seven days a week from probably late April to first of November um, to check to see if there are fish in it to close the gate, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the, I think the uh, anticipation of this wears off after a while. And so it's conceivable that you might have to have a dose of enthusiasm to get you to work getting up in the middle of the night. And uh, such was the case with Charlie. Uh, Charlie, this is the ballad of the night that Charlie tended wear. <clears throat> Charlie had a heron wear and was down to Bailey's bite. He got up to tend it in the middle of the night. It was late October, midnight, black as tar, and nothing out the window but a big cold star. House is like a cemetery, kitchen fire was dead. I'm damn good mine, says Charlie, to go right back to bed. But a man who runs a heron where even on the side is nothing but a slave to the goddamn tide. Well, a man feels meager and a man feels old in that pitch black midnight, lonesome and cold with chills in his stomach like 40,000 mice and the very buttons on his pants like little lumps of ice. Times he gets to feeling it's no damn use. So Charlie had a pitcher full in his orange juice. <laughs> then he felt better than he had before. So he had another pitcher full, you know, just to last him to the shore. Well, down by the beach rock, underneath a tree, Charlie saw something that he never thought he'd see. For sparkling in the lantern light as he went to pass was three big diamonds in the frosty grass. Hmm, says Charlie. Diamonds. Where'd they come from? I think I'll pick them up later on. You know, I always wanted some. Then he hauled in his dory and she felt light as air. And in the dark midnight, Charlie rode off to tend the ware. Well, out by the ware gate, Charlie found an old sea serpent swimming round and round had a head like a washtub and whiskers like thatch and the breath like the flame on a Portland star match. Black in the lamplight, up he rose with a great big barnacle on the end of his nose. And he looked Charlie over, kind of surly and cross and said, them fish you got shut up in there belongs to my boss. Fish? Said Charlie, fish in there? <laughs> I ain't caught a fish since I built the damn whale. Well, says the sea serpent, nevertheless, there's 10,000 bushels at a rough guess. So Charlie moved his lantern. He gave his oars a pull. He saw that the weir was brimming belly full. There was fish rising out of the water a trillion at a time. And the side of each and every one was like a silver dime. Well, says the sea serpent, what you going to do? They're uncomfortable. They don't belong to you. So open this contraption up and let them go. Come on, shake the lead now. The boss says so. Oh, he does, says Charlie. Well, who the hell is he thinks he can set back and send word to me? Sea serpent twizzle. Made a water spout. Says, you keep on, brother, and you'll find out. Why, Charlie says, you're nothing but a lie, so old you're hoary. So get your dirty whiskers off the gunnel of my dory. The sea serpent twizzled and he heaved underneath and he scunned back a set of sharp yellow teeth. Then he came at Charlie with a gurgly roar. Well, Charlie let him have it with a portside oar. 
right on the noggin, which was a hell of a knock. And the old sea serpent sank like a rock. One back, yells Charlie, and tell that old jerk not to send a boy to do a man's work. Then, over by the gate, kind of tinkly and clear, a pretty little voice says, you, Charlie, dear. Now what, says Charlie, this ain't funny. And the same sweet voice says, you, Charlie, honey. And there on the same pole, right in the wear, was a little green mermaid combing out her hair. All right, says Charlie, I see you and I know who you come from, too. So he let fly his bailing scoop and it landed with a clunk. And when the ocean settled, by the mermaid she'd sunk. Then the ocean moved behind him with a mighty heave and a hiss. And a thundery, rumbly voice remarked, I'm goddamn sick of this. And up come an old man, white from top to toe, white in the daisy fields, white in the snow, carrying a pitchfork with three tines on it, muttering in his whiskers and madder in the haunt. My sea serpent's so lame that he can hardly stir. And my best mermaid, you raised a lump on her. And you've been pretty sassy calling me a jerk. So now, the old man has come to do the man's work. Well, well, says Charlie, uh, why don't you just leave me be? You may be the hoary old man of the sea, but... I got to run a fish here shut up inside, and if you keep on frigging around, you're going to make me lose this tide. Next thing that Charlie knew, he was lying on the sand. The painter of his dory was right beside his hand. He could see out across the bay, and it was all calm and still and wide, and it was full daylight, and it was high tide. Oh, says Charlie, what am I about? The oars weren't wet, so he hadn't been out. Oh, he thought, diamonds underneath a tree. Seems to me I found some. Guess I better go and see. But he couldn't find any. Not one gem. You see, there's only three little owl dungs with frost on. Thank you, Dennis. Um, wonderful uh, recitation of uh, Ruth Moore's The Ballad of the Night that Charlie Tended Weir. Well, I want to thank all of you. Um, Dean, I'll just give the last word to you. You're hoping to, uh, to republish um, uh, Ruth's novels. Um, what, what's the, the short e explanation of that? Well, we're not hoping we are. We so are. Great. We got, uh, the Weir out, Spoon Handle out this year, and next year will be... Um, uh, second Growth, which I don't think Gary did republish, and we will also get out a new version of Candle Moss Bay. Great. And again, authentic, good writing lasts forever, so bring it on. Great, great. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure to join us from four to five on the second Wednesday of the, each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. Please tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle, 
at the University of Maine Sea Grant from four to five on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Karanak on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks so much to our guests in the studio, Dean Lunt, um, owner of Island Port Press, um, Gary Lawless, a poet and owner of the publishing company Blackberry Books and co-owner of Gulf of Maine Books, Dennis Damon, former state senator, and raconteur, I think we can say after today's program, um, Muriel Davison and um, Emily uh, Trask-Eaton, um, Ruth's nieces. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thanks to our underwriters. Thanks for Amy J Brown to engineer our program. And stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs>